Malachi 3, 1 through 12. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the day of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob, rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a light, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. You guys doing well? Excellent. Primarily right here, huh? How about the rest of you? You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. The Father Heart of God has been our teaching series, working our way through the book of Malachi. And the title of this weekend's message is Be Generous to Him. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 3. Chapter 3. And also grab your sermon notes out. You'll see at the front of those, uh, top of the sermon notes there, I'm going to start off with a few statements. I'll give you the thesis statement of what we're going to study here this morning. But the first statement is, you can give without loving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You guys agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do 100%. And and the best uh, example of love that gives would be God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did what? What did he do? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that's amazing what we have in him. Another great verse, uh, Romans 5, 8. 
It says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, a long way away from God, didn't want to have anything to do with God. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. So here's a thesis statement of this um, this weekend. Because we are generously loved by God, we will love generously both God and others. Because we are generously loved by God, we will love generously both God and others. Normal Christianity is love philanthropy. It's receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. That's normal Christianity. And I know that if you were really to look at your heart as I have my heart, I don't even hardly come close to that, but I want to. I really want to. And so I want to just regularly receive his love so that I can just give it out effortlessly, generously to all of those within my circle of touch or influence. So here's the background of this study in Malachi. Once again, God's people have returned to the promised land from Babylonian captivity, but things aren't going very well for them. And so their disillusionment has led them to spiritual apathy, bitterness, and cynicism. And so Malachi is calling them back to the covenant love of God. The overarching theme here has been, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, it would change everything. You would love him, that was week one. You would worship him, that was week two. Uh, You would listen to him, that was week three. And then you would be faithful to him, that was weeks four and five. And now we come to the section where we are saying you would be generous to him. You would be generous to him. So two questions we're looking at. You can see them. See these two questions on your outline. How are we generously loved by God? We're going to explore that, kind of bask in the reality of that. And then how will we love generously both God and others? Those are the two questions we're looking at here. So the first question, how are we generously loved by God? Now, they were trying God's patience and questioning of God's justice or his fairness in verse 17. That was the very last verse of chapter 2 as we're heading into chapter 3. So God's response to their failure to love, worship, listen, and be faithful to him is first, it's on your notes, first couple fill in the blanks, It was first by sending the messenger, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open. Look at this verse here, the first uh, part of verse 1, chapter 3 of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for the Lord. A clear reference to John the Baptist. If you want to study that further, you can go to Isaiah 43, Matthew 3, 1 through 3, and Matthew 11, 7 through 10 that validates that. It helps us to see this is John the Baptist. Now, this is what I found in my own life, and that is God sends messengers like John the Baptist, people and circumstances into my life to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Lord, both people in my life and also circumstances in my life have helped to prepare my heart to receive more of God in my life. Now, why? Why is that important? Why would he send uh, John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah to confront us with our sinfulness and need for a savior? So 
John the Baptist was calling them to repentance. He was exposing their sin and so, so that they would see their desperate need for a savior. Now, there's a, a survey that I do every game of life. We'll do another game of life right after the first of the year. And uh, I'll ask folks in the game of life this question. Was it good circumstances or bad circumstances that opened your heart to God? Nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, it's always, it's always bad circumstances bad circumstances, either, either through relational issues and conflict and people talking and speaking to you or through your circumstances. God uses bad circumstances to, to awaken us to the reality of our sinfulness and even he will bring people into our lives to confront us with that. And those are the John the Baptist in our life. Here's the second thing that God does in response to what's going on there in Malachi and also as he, as he relates to us. Second is by sending the messenger of the covenant. That's Jesus. That's your next fill in the blank on your notes. And so this is a clear reference for Christ, the Messiah for which they had longed for. Listen to the second part of verse one of chapter three of Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he certainly came to his temple, Matthew 21, 12 makes that clear, was the messenger of the covenant, Matthew 26, 26 and 28. Remember when in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus broke bread and gave him the cup and said, this is the new covenant. So he brought the new covenant, we see that. And, and also, his coming will, will be to bring grace and justice. We're gonna see that in just a few moments as we read verses two through five, but that's validated for us also in Matthew three eleven through 12. So let me ask you this question. How many biblical prophecies, predictions, did Jesus fulfill with his first coming? Anybody? All of them, okay, I got that one. More specifically, 300. Whoa, 300 predictions in the Old Testament that he fulfilled in the New Testament? Yeah, God wanted to make sure that we knew this is the Messiah. And these are a few of those predictions right here in Malachi. Malachi 3.1 prophecies were given 400 years before they happened. So what is this teaching us here? This is what it's teaching us, that the gospel has two parts. So you got the John the Baptist part, you've got the, the Jesus part, okay? And that's what he's showing us here. And so the gospel has two parts. It has the part that says that you are more sinful than you ever dared to think. You are terribly sinful. That's John the Baptist calling us to repentance. But it doesn't stop there. It also says that you are more loved than you ever dared to dream. We have an amazing savior in our sinfulness that we can reach out to and experience and know and follow and enjoy and have him rescue us and help us. Pride keeps us from seeing this, our sinfulness and our great need for a savior. If you're kind of thinking, ah, what's the big deal? You don't understand because possibly you have too much pride in your life. And so listen to what um, 
David Paul Tripp says, accepting the very bad news, your sin is necessary before you're ready to receive the very good news, God's grace. You celebrate grace most joyfully when you've mourned your sin most deeply. Many of us don't carry with us a very deep appreciation for grace because we don't carry with us a deep sadness for our sin. Here's the third thing that uh, God does here. It's on your notes there. His first coming, it's telling us here, the next verses, verses two through five, tell us that his first coming will be to bear our judgment and his second coming will be to bring judgment. Let me read verses two through four as it relates to his first coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So you hear what he's doing? So in the first coming, if we by grace put our faith in Christ, he purifies us. He begins to purify us and transform our lives. But if we reject his first coming, we will face his second coming. Listen to what it says in verse 5. He spells it out here for us. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so what these verses are telling us, verses two through five, are showing us that God is both justifier, that's his first coming, and he's also judge, that's his second coming. So the cross is where the judge took our judgment on our behalf. And so, if you reject him bearing your judgment, then he will bring judgment upon you. That's very clear in the text. It's very clear in the Bible. There is no refuge from God, only in God. So what's the point of all of this? How does this show us the love of of God? Tremendously it does. Luke 2, 10 through 11, and the angel said to them, this is the angel speaking to the shepherds in the field at night, says this, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I love that. This good news will bring great joy to your life. And if it doesn't bring great joy, it's because you don't understand the good news. So he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That is amazing. So Christmas is the dawning of indescribable, indestructible joy. It is the greatest wonder of the universe that God would become a baby born to die for you and I. That's outrageous. That is amazing. I love it. I absolutely love Christ and love all that he's done for us. 
And so the more you understand the gospel, the more it will bring this kind of joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. So what is God's solution to the sin and suffering problem in Malachi's day and also our day? We have a lot of sin and suffering going on on this planet currently. What is God's answer to those problems? The Messiah, the coming of Jesus. That's the answer. And and this is what separates Christianity from all other major cults and religions. All other major cults and religions send advisors who tell you what you must do to be right with God. So if you want to know the difference between Christianity and every other major cult and religion, this is it. This is it. Every other major cult and religion sends advisors to tell you what you must do to be right with God through a code of ethics, through a set of rules, through any number of things. If you jump through these hoops, then you're in. The good are in, the bad are out. But Christianity is completely different. And when I began to understand this, oh my goodness, it just, it, it captured my heart and I began to see the love of Christ unlike ever before. Christianity sends an advocate, not an advisor, but an advocate to tell you what he has done to make you right with God, to make you right with him. That is absolutely amazing. So here's a question for you. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you here this morning. What are the two greatest gifts God could ever give to you. So this is the time when we give gifts, and and those are to reflect the greatest gifts that he gives to us. What are the two greatest gifts that God could give to us? Go ahead and discuss that with the folks around you, see if they know the answer to that. So here's what I think. The first gift is that the gift of him reconciling us to himself. He bridged the gap, the sin gap that separated us from God. Our sinfulness, God's holiness, we were separated from God. We were doomed to die. Death is that separation from God, really, is what it says uh, in Romans 3. And so, uh, so he reconciled us. Think about this. He reconciled us through Not our performance, but through the performance of Christ. So every other major religion, the good are in, the bad are out. You gotta hit the standard. Christianity, the humble are in, the proud are out. All you need is need. And you begin to see more clearly, oh my goodness, I'm a wreck. I am desperate for this savior. And I have a wonderful savior. I have an amazing savior. He has come to rescue us, redeem us, restore us, to love us. That's that's the gospel message. So the gift of him reconciling you to himself. So you're forgiven, you're made perfectly righteous in his eyes. I mean, think about that. Because of what Christ has done, he lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died in our place, and now his perfect righteousness has been attributed to our spiritual account. So we stand before God perfectly righteous, positionally, but not practically, okay? So we still need work on the practicality of that, and so that's what God is doing. So so we have justification, 
perfect righteousness before him. And then sanctification is where he helps us to become more like he sees us. He begins to transform our lives. That's what that reconciliation really means. And so we're forgiven, made perfectly righteous in his eyes. But here's the second gift. What do you think the second gift is? So if we've been reconciled to God, what do you think the second gift is? Here's, it's my, it's, it, I love the first. I really love the second. He could have just reconciled us and just kind of let us do whatever we want to do. No, it's the gift of himself to us. He gives himself to us. Intimacy with God. He not just reconciles us. That's the first gift. That's a wonderful gift. He took care of our sin debt, but he gives himself to us. We have intimacy with the God of the galaxies. That is amazing. That, that's out of this world. And, and so that means being adopted into his family, empowered by his Holy Spirit, and then, of course, guaranteed a place in heaven with him for all eternity. And so you could do nothing more important than to wake up every morning of your life and remind yourself that through Christ, you have been reconciled to the one who is the creator and controller of everything that exists and that he is always with you. He is always with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. His hand is always upon you. He never stops watching you. His heart is always for you. He is always at work accomplishing his plans for you and through you. He lifts your burdens and lightens your load. He is your God, your Savior, your friend, your Father. And that would be the most important thing you could do every day is to remind yourself of that, of those two gifts. I've been reconciled. It's a done deal. And he's given me his presence. I'm still a mess, so God help me. Help me with my life, continue to do that work in my life. But that becomes the foundation of his transforming your life. So Malachi is saying that Jesus is the solution to all of our sin and suffering problems. And that is why Desert Breeze is built with the underlying conviction that whatever the capacity for human sin and suffering, the church has a greater capacity through the gospel for healing and wholeness. If he never did another thing for us, so from the time that you make a commitment to Christ and you enter into this relationship with him, if he never did another thing for you and you, let's just say you suffered from that point out, that would be enough to get you through any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, any kind of difficulties, all the way into heaven to be with him for all eternity. If he never did another thing for us, that would be enough. Right there. I've been reconciled to God, and he's given me his presence. And nothing can ever separate me from his love. He will never leave me or forsake me. That is amazing. I love that. So, because we are generously loved by God, we will love generously both God and others. Let's look at the next question. So, how will we love generously both God and others? By the way, loving generously both God and others is is really showing you whether or not you're really receiving regularly his love in your life. And so how will we love generously both God and others? Here's the first one on your notes. By returning to God, 
by returning to God. He's, he's talking about here in verse uh, 6 and 7, he's talking about repentance. And, and, and as a Christian, all of life is repentance. All of life, every day, you're making course corrections. If you're sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, if you're spending time in his word, he's going to point things out in your life that are outside of his maybe boundaries or whatever is going on in your life so that you can correct, so that you can repent. See, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That's, that's found in Romans 2, 4. So we don't repent to get his love. We have his love Therefore, we repent. He's taken care of all of our issues and problems. We come to him. He loves us. And so, listen to what he says here in verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. You are not consumed. I love that verse. I was meditating on that verse this last week, and I began to realize it. It began to dawn on me. Oh, my goodness, everything else in life changes. Relationships change. Jobs change. Bank accounts change. Everything changes. And he's the only person in the world, the only thing we can build a rock-solid foundation upon. He never changes. Therefore, we are unbreakable when we face the issues of life because we have solid rock foundation in him. That's what he's saying here. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. So he's calling them to repentance. That's what John the Baptist was all about. Exposing our sin, helping us to see our need for a savior. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so there's a couple of thoughts under this by returning to God. His immutability, that's his unchangingness. So his immutability secures our indestructibility from sin and suffering. His immutability secures our recoverability from sin and suffering. I think that's a word, recoverability. I didn't just make it up. I think it's really a a real word, okay? So his immutability secures our recoverability from sin and suffering. No matter what kind of sins you've committed, or been committed against you, no matter what kind of suffering you're going through, his immutability, his unchanging, his unchangingness will keep you from being consumed. That's what he's saying in verse six. That's an amazing promise. I love that. And so, how will we love generously both God and others by returning to God? Here's the next one, by, by giving to God, by giving to God. This is where he, he talks about this in verses uh, 7c to 8. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, well, in tithes and contributions. And then in verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, here's my question for you. Why would God, through Malachi, deal now with money? He dealt with our, our love. He dealt with our worship. He dealt with, with our listening to him. And then he dealt with our faithfulness. And now he comes to this topic of, of money. Why would he deal with money? It's because it's the number one rival God. The number one rival God is is money, it's possessions, it's things, 
It's the stuff of this world, and it reveals where your heart is. Your generosity or lack of generosity is revealing your heart. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also, Matthew 5, 21. So let's answer the question because the opposite of generosity would be greed and materialism. So we need to answer that question. So what is that? What is greed and materialism? As one theologian put it, it, he said, it is excess concern for, worry about, love of, and need for money and possessions. And greed is is, is so subtly working in our lives that oftentimes we don't even see it. We're swimming in greed in our culture today and materialism. So it's it's hard to see that in our own lives. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed and covetousness. Because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of a person's possessions. Real life is not found in getting more stuff, having a bigger house, nicer car, bigger bank account. He's saying, this is Jesus speaking. He says, life is not found there. It's not found in that. And so greed reveals, our materialism reveals that we think money will bring us happiness or buy us happiness or any number of things. That's our culture. So he's coming after the number one rival God. So the Bible gives us a guideline for us to check ourselves for greed and materialism. How do I know if I've got greed and materialism working in my life? How do I identify that? Well, he gives us a guideline for that. He gives us a test here. It's through tithes and contributions. It will show you whether or not you have greed and materialism in your life. And so a tithe, what is a tithe? A tithe is 10% of your income to your local church family. This is the baseline. It's a rule of thumb. The more you have, the more you should give. You should do that proportionally. So it becomes kind of a standard that 10% uh, of your giving, first 10% goes right to God and it goes to your local church family and, and by the way, let me just say this, that as it relates to this tithe, this understanding of tithe is that if you're below the poverty level, you probably won't be maybe giving a, a tithe. But if you are making, how many could make it on a, a million dollars a year? Uh, uh, okay. Would that be easy to do pretty much? As long as you didn't raise your standard of, of living. But what would be the tithe for a million dollars a year? $100,000. So when you become a millionaire, don't forget that. Okay? So it actually, you should be giving probably even more than that, than that tithe. should be even more than that. And then uh, it says contributions or offerings. So tithe is 10% of your income to your local church family. Contributions would be offerings are over and above that. For instance, that would be missions and benevolence and our building fund. By the way, we're getting ready to build this out. Right after the first of the year, we will be knocking down some walls and expanding our auditorium. We've been needing to do this for quite some time, but it's because of your generosity and your continued generosity here. We're able to do that. We're able to do so much ministry here because of how gracious and generous our congregation is. That's fantastic. 
And so you, we give over and above that. And so I, I was very fortunate. I was taught by my parents how to give tithes and offering growing up in my home. And this is what was so crazy, is that I watched my dad, who wasn't even attending church, write out a tithe check and give it to my mom so that when we went to church, she could drop it in the offering box. I was like, I remember that. I remember that, and so I've continued that on, and when I met Nancy and we got married, we have been giving tithes and offerings our whole life, 42 plus years, and, it's, and I don't share that to brag, I'm just telling you, it's second nature, it's no big deal, we're thinking, oh my goodness, we could never give enough to really reflect our love and gratitude to all that he's given to us. It just becomes an overflow of your own life. And so that's been a discipline within our life uh, for all these years. And I, and I happen to believe, too, that here at Desert Breeze, the leaders should be leading the way in this. If you're a leader, you should be leading the way in this. I'm, I'm leading the way in this. I believe in this. I'm convinced of this. Now, here's what's interesting. All the stats that I've ever looked at is that the more affluent you are, the less you give proportionally. The people that are carrying the heavy end of the logger are more the middle class and even below the middle class. They're the most generous proportionally. You see a wealthy person give you know a million dollars, that's no big deal. If you got $200 million in the bank, what's a million dollars to them? And that's not even a tithe. And so we think, oh, that's a lot of money. No, have you seen what they live in and how they live their life? That's nothing. So the affluent in our culture today are giving less than those of us that are middle class and, and below that. So here's the argument when it comes to tithe and offerings is that people, I've had people say this to me, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. Actually, it's in the New Testament and Jesus is the one who brings it up. In Luke eleven forty two. 42, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and this is what he says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. So he's just saying, you guys are really meticulous about tithing on everything that you have and, and at the same time neglect justice and the love of God. These you, these you ought to have done, that is tithing, without neglecting the others. So, so here's the tendency, and I see this happen a lot in the church as a whole, is that people will come to church and they'll put their money in the box and think, that's, that's all my responsibility. At least I give to this organization. No, 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 no. It's much more than that. You need to roll up your sleeves and get involved. Yeah, you give. You give of your, your treasure, your finances, but you also give of your time and your talents. And you get involved in other people's lives. That's what he's talking about here. They thought that they had met their obligation. Oh, we, we give. He says, no, that's not enough. You should be also giving offerings in alms to the poor and getting your hands dirty and getting involved in their lives. That's what he's saying here. So, are we more or less blessed than the people of the Old Testament? What do you guys think? Okay, there's three of us that believe that. Actually, if you really understand the difference between Old Testament and New Testament and the New Covenant, oh my goodness, we are amazingly blessed. Therefore, we should be even more generous. 
couple of my favorite verses uh, that are found in the two chapters in the New Testament that actually give us the best kind of teaching on generosity in giving are 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And what's interesting is that Paul is, is asking them and telling them how they need to be generous, but he doesn't work on their will. It's not a morally restrained will by working on their emotions, by showing pictures of of decimated children with flies over their face and, and all of that. He doesn't do that. He's not working on their emotions, nor is he working on, on their will by commanding them. You, you need to do this, but he works on their heart. It's not a morally restrained, morally restrained will, but it's a supernaturally transformed heart. And so how does he do that? He does it by this. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Do you understand how rich you are? He's working on their heart. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And it's in that chapter nine, he talks about giving proportionately, he talks about if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. He talks about being a hilarious giver, and that would be the response of somebody that really understands grace. So it's great teaching on that. So nothing will break the power of greed and materialism and make you a more generous person than a heart ravished by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you. So if you don't find yourself being very generous, it's not by trying harder, it's not a an act of the will, it's a changed heart. And the only way your heart will be changed is that you have medic, medi, medicated, meditated, that's what I meant. I, I, I was gonna say medicated, but I did say medicated, didn't I? So medicated, it's not by medicating yourself, it's by meditating upon the beauty and the glory of who Christ is. And... Um, and that will change your heart. This is what Malachi says, that our lack of generosity is, there's three things. It robs God, that's your next fill in the blank. So our lack of generosity robs God. As I studied this, this is the first time that I've studied this in depth in Malachi, and it's very profound, and it's been really kind of very much life-changing for me in my understanding of what our lack of generosity does. So it says that we rob God. The word rob here, the Hebrew, uh, this is more than to take what is not yours. It is to pillage and plunder someone's home. So that's what that word means. So when God says, you have robbed me, it's basically saying you have pillaged and plundered my home. Let me ask you this question. Has anyone here ever had their home or car burglarized? Show of hands. How'd you feel? Uh, Violated and angry. And the Bible is basically saying that's how God feels. God is saying that's what we have done to his house. We have gone through the closets and the drawers and have taken what we want and left what we don't want and none of it belongs to us. So how, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we rob God? By our lack of generosity with our money. By spending too much on ourselves and not enough on God. So this is what, it, it, this dawned on me as I was studying through this, is that stinginess is, is much more cosmically evil than what you think. 
Listen to what uh, 1 Chronicles 29.12 says. David and the children of Israel are raising money to build a temple, and at one point David prays to God and says this. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you, and we are only, we are only giving to you what comes from your hand. What is he saying? He's saying this. Anything you have is a gift from God. That car you drove over in, that's a gift from God. Those clothes you're wearing, that's a gift from God. That food you you ate this morning, that's a gift from God. That roof over your head, that is a gift from God. It is all it is all a gift from God. And the typical response I've had people say, well, I've worked very hard for what I have. Yes. Yes, you have worked hard for what you have with abilities, opportunities, and circumstances that God has provided. If God had decided that you were to be born on a mountain in Mongolia in the 11th century, you wouldn't be doing as well as you're doing right now, okay? <laughs> Believe me. So we are to relate to our money, and this is what the Bible teaches, we are to relate to our money as stewards, not owners. So the purpose of a tithe is to proclaim God's ownership over us. That's what you're saying with your tithes and offerings. You're saying, God, you own it all. I'm just giving a portion back to, to you, the source of all the good things that I have in, in my life. So as a steward, you manage your money according to the owner's directives. You don't want to become a Bernie Madoff Christian, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? Remember Bernie Madoff? He made off with a lot of people's money, okay? He was an investment firm, and he, he didn't invest it. He took that money, and he spent it on himself, and he used it for his own gain, and now he's going to die in prison because of that, because of that, and that's, that's a good analogy. Now, anytime we talk about uh, finances, is uh, that part of our financial wise uh, management the Bible gives us some really good directives. Dave Ramsey, we have an offer a class here that helps people walk through this. But there are basically five biblical principles for wise financial management. We're just talking about one of those, but let me just give you all five of them here. These are all found in the book of Proverbs, the, the wisdom literature. So there's, uh, there is a budget, having a budget, Telling your money where it's going to go, you, you actually line it out rather than finding out later where it went and going, oh, that wasn't really consistent with, with our values or whatever. So you have a budget. There's good record keeping. So you keep record of every time you stop by Starbucks and buy that $10 drink and you begin to see, wow, that's a lot of money every month. So you're record keeping. And then there's true wealth. It's understanding where true riches are. They're found in Christ. And understanding true riches will keep you and give you that self-control. That's the next one. So you got budget, record keeping, true wealth, and then self-control. Self-control will keep you from the compulsive, impulsive spending habits. And then the last one, of course, is generosity. Being a generous person. And those are the directives that God gives us. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, God doesn't need my money. How would you respond? Acts 17.25 says, yep, you're right. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But listen to what John Piper says about our gifts. I, I love this. 
He says, gifts given to wealthy, self-sufficient people like God are echoes and intensifiers of the giver's desire to show how wonderful the person is. In a sense, giving gifts to God are like fasting, going without something to show that God is more valuable than what you are going without. It is a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich by bartering with you or negotiating some payment. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. I bring my gifts to say that you alone can satisfy my heart, not holding on to these gifts. That's really good really good so we rob God but we also rob ourselves our lack of generosity is robbing ourselves Uh, verse 9 you are cursed with a curse because of your lack of generosity verse 10a bring the full tithe into the storehouse that word storehouse is an interesting word in the Hebrew it literally means treasury bring your tithes and offerings into the treasury the house of God the people of God and verse 10, it says, so, so he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So what is he talking about there? Spiritual, emotional, physical needs will be met through local church families like Desert Breeze. And so verse 10b, and this is what he says, he gives a promise, and I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So here, here's, uh, let me give you some illustrations here. If, if your tithe is not in God's treasury, his storehouse, his temple, then it is in some other treasury. So three, three illustrations here. If you find it hard to be generous with your money, but it's incredibly easy to buy clothes, then your wardrobe is your real storehouse. It's your real treasury and temple, and you are looking to your personal appearance and how people perceive you physically. You're looking to all of that for your love and acceptance rather than God. If you find it hard to be generous, but it's incredibly easy to spend money on your home effortlessly, then you are looking to your home for your significance rather than God. If you find it hard to be generous, but it's incredibly easy to put money into your savings or investments, then you are looking to your bank account for security rather than God. Whatever you spend your money on effortlessly. When I discovered this years ago, I began to realize, oh, I know where my real treasure is. I might say that it's God, but then for me, in the early days, it was books. I could just spend money effortlessly. I go to a bookstore, I'm walking out of there with a whole U-Haul full of books. I mean, it was packed out I would buy I bought all kinds of books and I have a lot of books in my library but I begin to realize wait a minute if my heart was really directed towards God I would effortlessly be generous with that part of my life of course my wife let's talk about her right now hers were wanting to spend she would spend money effortlessly and I understand and I, I was okay with this but on our kids and our grandkids and 
in our house and things like that. But whatever you spend your money on effortlessly is your real God. If it's not the God of the Bible, then it will be a temporal God that will enslave you and disappoint you. Only he can liberate you and delight you through your generosity, through your giving. The nicest cars, homes, clothes, and the biggest bank accounts in the world can't stop cancer, traffic accidents, or broken hearts. It can't give you what only God can give you. Here's the next one. We rob not only God and ourselves, but we rob others. It robs others. Look at verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We are robbing others from seeing the blessing of God in our lives and through our lives. How many uh, have ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. How many have never seen that movie? Never seen that movie. What's wrong with you? You un-American? Okay, I'm just kidding. I, some of you didn't even raise your hand at all, okay? But it's a, it's a wonderful life with Jimmy Stewart. He is George Bailey who lives in Bedford Falls and runs the family business, a savings and loan that builds into the social fabric of the community. And he longs to, to leave that podunk town, that small town, and travel the world like others have done. But he feels enslaved to the family business. He encounters very difficult times, wishes he was never born. So his guardian angel, what was the guardian angel's name? Clarence. So his guardian angel, Clarence, grants him his wish. Okay, you've never been born. Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville, run by the tyrant old man Potter, who uses and abuses people in the town for personal success and financial gain, and the town becomes a cesspool of iniquity. It's a mess. And there's a scene in the movie where George goes to where he thinks is new, uh, this new housing development that his company had produced, and, but Instead of seeing this new housing development, anybody know what it is? There's a graveyard. There's a graveyard there. And so he realizes that he has truly lived a wonderful life because he has invested his life into his faith, his family, his friends, and the community at large. So if you ever get a little bit frustrated over your giving, wondering, does it make any impact? Watch the movie. It's a wonderful life. Yes, of course. When you sow into the social fabric of the community as we are regularly and consistently, and you guys do a wonderful time, especially around the holidays, all the gift giving and all the things that we do to impact the community at large all around here, we are sowing into that social fabric to bring about good in people's lives. So how will we generously love God in others by returning to God, by giving to God, and then here's the next one, by being blessed by God. Did you notice the blessing that he says here? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, and the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And that is a probably, you think, well, that doesn't apply to me. This is an agricultural environment as theirs was. How does this apply to me? Well, this is how it applies to you. I know that Nancy and I, there was a time in our life with our three kids uh, when they were small, uh, we had an old beat-up station wagon. That's all we could afford. And I don't know how it kept running, but God kept that running. I mean, it, it was so old and messed up that we, we'd roll the windows down and all that lining on the top of that, it was, it, was, it was busted apart and the kids would be covered with it, okay? So we didn't dare open up the windows, but it was just a wreck. And yet God kept it going for us. We had a, we had a refrigerator in our home that we couldn't replace and it would make this really weird noise. Uh, every so often it would just go... We're like, what is that? We did everything we could to make sure that you know, it was okay, but we couldn't afford anything to, to replace it or even have a, a guy come out and take care of it. And that thing kept on going and going and going. And there were times when it would even wake us up in the middle of the night and Nancy and I would look at each other and high-five each other. <laughs> it's still going. Praise God. Praise God. I have talked to a parade of people through the years that have told me their disciplined generosity, even when it was tough, brought a windfall. It brought a windfall either physically, emotionally, relationally, or even financially. I had a gal last night in our church, um, a single mom. She was, when she was a single mom raising two kids, had a hard time making ends meet, but continued giving faithfully. And she told me that she received a letter from the mortgage company that they had miscalculated and that she was two months ahead in her mortgage. Two months ahead. She says it was, it was stunning. It was amazing. And, and throughout that time, I was continuing to give. And God took care of me. So three issues. God warns of a curse. That's verse 9. God invites a test. That's verse 10b. It's the only place in the Bible that tells us to test God. It's almost like God's looking at you and saying, test me in this. Test me in this. And then it is a matter of trust. Money is, is about his ability to trust you and your willingness to trust him. If you say that tithes and offerings, you have got to be kidding. That's outrageous. That's an outrageous standard. It's because you trust yourself and not God. And it's revealing your greed and materialism. And um, and so if you're not giving at all, you want to start somewhere. You might not be able to reach that level of tithe yet because of your budget and where you are. But that's, you need to start somewhere. This is what he's saying to begin to demonstrate your love for God and, and your generosity because of how much he has been generous to you. Here's some final thoughts. This is where we finish up the text in chapter 3. He says, if, if you want God's blessing in any area of your life, you better move to a position he can bless. Now, we already have his blessing, therefore we repent, we come into that blessing, but if we want to continue in that blessing, we continue to love and obey him. And God brings blessing on top of blessing. 
That's verses 10, 11. Whatever you give up obeying God is nothing compared to what you will gain. That's verses 13 through 15 that we didn't read. And then God's blessings far exceeds material blessings. That's verses 16 through 18. I would encourage you to read those on your own. Don't forget Christmas Eve service is 2.30 and 4 o'clock. Next week we finish up the book of Malachi. Read chapter 4 in advance, and the title of that weekend's message is Be Transformed by Him. This will get us ready for the new year. I'll be up front at the end of the service. If you are new, I would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, for we know the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And, and we are rich in you, Father, because you are able to make all grace abound to us, so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good work, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Because we are generously loved by you, may we love generously both you and others with our time, our talents, and our tithes and offerings. All for your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys.